Welcome to the Queer Body Podcast, where we are redefining the edges of identity and healing with your host, Dr. Laura Polak, a somatic healer and chiropractor. Let's join the podcast. Welcome to the Queer Body. I am absolutely delighted to have one of my teachers from a recent class I was in with us today. Their name is Mordecai Cohen Ettinger. They have nearly 30 years of experience as a multi-sector social justice activist and organizer, holistic healer, radical scholar, and educator. Mordecai is the founding director of the Health Justice Commons, has co-founded the TGI Justice Project, served as an interim co-director at Justice Now, and as an interim executive director at Cadiz's Help me, please. Caduceus. Caduceus. <laughs> Thank Outreach you. Services. Yeah. Outreach Services, a radical mental health organization. They are adjunct faculty at the California Inter- Institute of Integral Studies. Their field is critical science, technology, and medicine studies. And Mordecai's research spans environmental health and toxicology to the workings of the medical industrial complex, which we will described shortly, to the neurobiology of the social nervous system and the implications with regard to collective and historical trauma, healing, resilience, and social change. Schooled by years of movement work and trained in somatic experiencing, Reiki, and cranial sacral therapy, they have studied with Dr. Peter Levine, biophysicist and founder of Somatic Experiencing, and Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Finally, Mordecai is queer, gender, non-binary. They are survivor of radiation poisoning and what is designated by the UN to be medical torture. They are here for transforming the medical industrial complex and for our futures to be possible. I am absolutely delighted to engage in this conversation. And for some of our listeners, and even for myself, it's always wonderful to redefine. I would love to kind of delve into some of these terms in here, just starting with defining what is a medical industrial complex, Mordecai? Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you and all of your listeners. It's really a gift. And I would be glad to share the health justice commons and my working definition of the medical industrial complex. So most of us, when we think about how we receive healthcare in the U.S. and even globally, we just think of, you know, we receive care through the healthcare system of whatever place we live in. And for us, it's the U.S. healthcare system for those of us here in Turtle Island. But in fact, If you look behind the curtains, no pun intended, from the medical curtains that we often are subjected to in healthcare appointments, you know, if you look a little bit more deeply than what we're easily led to believe or see, we see that healthcare is really delivered and administered through a set of interlocking institutions, beliefs, mindsets, and disciplines, and cultural, social, and political practices. And all of those together constitute the medical industrial complex. 
And they are very far reaching institutions that really comprise the medical industrial complex. They're, they're interlocking and they all sort of amplify the legitimacy and power of the others. And that's how complex complexes work. Uh, if we look at the prison industrial complex, it's very similar. And in fact, the medical industrial complex and the prison industrial complex are, are not just kind of parallel complexes. They're, they're very much overlapping ones. And the medical industrial complex is, is very carceral in nature as well. But to name some of the institutions and disciplines that are part of the medical industrial complex, you know, one could name hospitals, research universities, the medical clinic where you receive your health care, but also group homes, nursing homes, insurance companies, big pharma and biotech firms, and even big corporate polluting multinationals, many of which might be multinational chemical corporations, but also have pharmaceutical or biotech subsidiaries. One of the things we talk a lot about in the Health Justice Commons popular and political education is the way in which there's a continuum that exists connecting the medical industrial complex with corporate polluters. And a great, I wouldn't say great, a very prominent and painful example of that, that kind of corporate polluter continuum and the MIC would be a company like Bayer Monsanto, which of course is a large multinational corporation that is a, the product of a merger in 2018, where Monsanto is the maker of glyphosate, otherwise known as Roundup, which is one of the most pervasive and carcinogenic herbicides on the, on the planet, while they also are the makers of FDA-approved pharmaceutical cancer drugs that treat non-Hopkins lymphoma, which is one of the most prominently caused cancers by glyphosate. So the business, the quote-unquote business model is literally set up to profit from the very illnesses that they are causing. That's kind of the medical industrial complex in a nutshell. <laughs> I've said yeah, a lot. No, I really appreciate you yeah. stating that. And, you know, as a chiropractor, I think that a lot of that is not new information to me. But I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, who have, it's odd, I insurance, which is supposed to be for our health and wellness, and which is really a part of the medical industrial complex. I think the idea of healthcare being somewhat outside of that is just so foreign. So if there's this whole industrial complex that is making money off of our health and also making us sick, like then what do we do? Like it, that is such a big, oh my gosh, let's look at this. Actually, this healthcare system is making money off of our being sick. They're giving us drugs that make us sick, Roundup, i.e., and then also they're making money off of the same drugs that are intended to make us well. That's kind of a mind blow for many people who are used to using insurance for their health care. What, what do we do with that? It's a really challenging situation that we're in. It is one of, I think, one of the hardest contradictions in, in our society today because we are really dependent on this, this system that is 
you know, there to quote unquote, ensure our care or survival, but at the same time is incredibly harmful for us is definitely organized to exert social control and extract profit as opposed to actually providing care. So it is one of the reasons why the health justice commons that we were created was because we wanted to be able to build community awareness and power to kind of tackle these huge contradictions to kind of expose these dynamics, but also build the capacity for creating, creating solutions and creating alternatives. So I think one primary way that we do that is that we work with healthcare workers, particularly frontline healthcare workers and medical students and nursing students that are working inside of the medical industrial complex to support them to be agents of change from within the system, essentially to kind of create as much space and possibility as they can or as we can together to get people who are receiving care within healthcare institutions the best possible care within the conditions as they are. So that's 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 one strategy, one ongoing strategy. And then I think another strategy is to recognize the alternatives that already exist and try to make them more accessible and sustainable, both for practitioners and for people who are receiving care. You know, there's a lot of talk within that, you know, especially with insurance providers of like integrative health and preventative health care. Well, actual preventative health care is justice, (laughs) you know, um, having access to the institutions and the resources that we need that are just. So, and that looks like economic justice where people aren't having to work excessively in order to just barely make ends meet. I mean, that takes a huge toll on our health. We need justice. We need people to be able to live free from the persistent stress and harm or threat of harm of of racist and white supremacist violence or homophobic violence or, you know, patriarchal violence. So these are the things that will, will in the most immediate sense, guarantee health, right? Like that's, those are the conditions that we need. And we know that our healthcare system, the medical industrial complex is not fighting for those things for us. In fact, it's mobilizing those oppressions against us and continues to make profit from them. Like, like you reflected back in response to my initial comments. So, so it's really the, the real preventative care is going to come from the, the type of care that, that we're able to provide or sustain outside of the MIC. But you've articulated this, this really significant challenge that many of us in our communities don't have the funds or access to funds to be able to pay for that care. So I think a a lot of health justice really right now is about economic justice and access. Like how can we have more resources available for people to go to an herbalist or a chiropractor or a curandera that, you know, that they would have to pay, that we would have to pay for out of pocket. How can we have access to that care? And then how can healthcare providers who are offering those services that those healing practices to our communities also sustain their work. And and that's really challenging to figure out. There's definitely different models and experiments happening right now to, to make that type of care more accessible. 
for example, where I live in Ohlone Territory, otherwise known as a Bay Area in the San Francisco, California Bay Area, there's many community clinics that are emerging. Healing Clinic Collective is one such endeavor. And another endeavor is the Freedom Community Clinic. And both of those community-based efforts are bringing bring together healers to be able to provide low, low fee or free services to our communities that is being underwritten basically by grassroots funding or foundation fund, fundraising efforts. So those are just, so that's like one example. And then there's a lot of mutual aid efforts where, again, we're, so for example, the Health Justice Commons has a mutual aid project called the Radical Telehealth Collective. And we work with healthcare workers from across the U.S. to, to basically volunteer to give their services. So our community members who have been hardest hit during the ongoing pandemic can have access to to urgent healthcare via a telehealth platform. And we underwrite that with grassroots and, and foundation fundraising. And we just also try to support the healthcare workers as much as possible who are giving their time and who are also incredibly strained at this time. So I think it's like those are some of the efforts. And there's a lot of mutual aid networks that have emerged or strengthened during the ongoing pandemic. So those are just those are some efforts that are happening now. And, you know, it, we, we need to work very hard to, quote unquote, bring it to scale where we can really understand and meet the full needs of our community. So it's going to be an ongoing process. And, you know, the resistance against the MIC is longstanding, but it's going to continue to be a very long journey. So I hope that that's helpful. Yeah, I so appreciate you bringing up the economics because the economics is really kind of what drives a lot of the wellness industrial complex as well as the medical industrial complex. And the thing that Health Justice Commons does that is just beautiful is that there's kind of at least two prongs, if not four or five, but one of which is that you guys offer classes in understanding what the medical industrial complex is, what the history is. It's really quite, you know, to have historical accuracy about why things are now operating the way they are. And then to actually have gone even steps further to create solutions to the problems, like what you were mentioning about educating people going into service and how to serve communities from, you know, with a little bit of fresh air, even if they are within a matrix that's not perfect. And then also to provide other sources of care. I also was involved with bringing what they were calling alternative medicine, which, you know, or real medicine for the underserved, which is, you know, it's just brilliant that you have all of those things in place. So I will offer to the listeners and, and maybe we'll delve into it more, but there is an educational class program coming up. Isn't that right, Mordecai? There is. Thank you so much for, for asking about that. So the Health Justice Commons, we have a, a, a six-week series that's starting this fall. It's our fall 2022 political ed series, Understanding and Transforming the Medical Industrial Complex, and it's part one. It's six successive Thursdays. And you can learn all about it on our website. And our website is healthjusticecommons.org. And then you can go to the upcoming session uh, section on the website 
to enroll. But essentially, as as you said, Laura, this this succession series is community education and community empowerment to do a deep dive into the history and the, the hidden history and the current workings of the medical industrial complex. You know, so how did we get here where we are? And many of us, because we're taught to think this way, you know, just believe, oh, the medical industrial complex or the U.S. healthcare system, it's broken and it just needs to be fixed. It just needs to be fixed. But in fact, it's working exactly as it was designed to function. And that's really what we reveal and offer to people in depth. We use an intersectional social justice lens. We really heavily center disability justice and climate justice and all we do. And of course, racial and gender justice and economic justice as well, as I mentioned. We also have an abolitionist mindset that we bring to all of our work and our community education. So we believe as we teach people to understand the medical industrial complex and recenter ourselves into our own truths about what health and wellness really means to us and our communities, we bring this abolitionist mindset, which means that we think that our healthcare systems to be truly healing need to center bodily autonomy and individual and collective sovereignty. You know, that we are the, we're the authority, we're the experts on our body and on our needs, and that that, that really needs to be centered and that we need and deserve health care that is about honoring our, our sacredness and our wholeness as opposed to social control or coercion or extraction all of which are huge defining features of the of the medical industrial complex as it currently exists. And then finally, we offer a perspective that's rooted in people science, which means that we offer training in different scientific disciplines, biological sciences, in order to help us really understand what's happening with our bodies. But at the same time, we do so with a critical lens, understanding that medical science has co-evolved and is entangled with white supremacy, ableism, male supremacy, and has been historically and continues to be used against us in harmful ways. Or the, the quote-unquote knowledge that comprises these disciplines has been accumulated or extracted in very harmful ways. So we we aim to kind of expose and disrupt those patterns of oppression or exploitation, while at the same time giving people the tools to be able to in, interpret science in ways that we can use it to reclaim and recenter in our own power and authority. Those are the frameworks of how we offer the training and the education And we want people to leave with new understanding and a set of tools to really help them either be able to more strongly advocate for themselves and their loved ones in healthcare contexts, or be able to use the tools that they learn to move their work forward in whatever area in your life you might need that support, or be able to have a sphere of influence where you could usually give give the use these tools to have like more leverage, more power, more momentum. Everybody's welcome and a lot of different people participate in the sessions. We have many healthcare workers, med and nursing students. We have many healers as well, you know, body workers, therapists, 
curanderas, herbalists, midwives, doulas. And we also have many members and leaders from disabled communities, disability justice communities, and then artists and activists from all different sectors and communities. So yeah, everyone is welcome. And then a lot of times we have parents come who have kids or young adults that they are caring for or other caregivers that are that are just like, I want to be a better advocate for my child or this person in my life. And that is really essential too. We're really there for everybody. And the history that we teach is really surprising for people. And simultaneously, it's very validating for, for the truth of what people are, are really experiencing or that they've witnessed their ancestors survive or go through. And our work at the Health Justice Commons, we center people who have been most harmed or marginalized by the medical industrial complex. So we center disabled and chronically ill people. We center Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian Pacific Islander, and additional people of color. We center low-income people. We center queer, trans, and non-binary people and all of our accomplices and all of the many things that we are simultaneously as well. We have a lot of healthcare workers and med students who are BIPOC and or disabled and or queer. We know that there's a lot of overlaps in who we are in our wholeness and everyone is really welcome. And the learning and the learning and the healing is, is really powerful and healing and learning are something that we see as completely intertwined and interdependent. So that's a big part of our spaces too. Wonderful. And then, you know, if you may speak to it for a moment, if I'm just, you know, a average queer listening to the podcast and I have, I don't know what people are, let's say I have anxiety and I'm going to use my traditional covered California or Kaiser or whatever insurance plan I have. The thing about taking your class in my witnessing people learning about the hidden truths, which I think is incredibly, I'm a lifelong student and love hearing the history, but it's very overwhelming. And if I'm just your average queer and I want to go to use my Kaiser because it's paid for because we're required by law to have insurance in California, it may not be so where some other people are listening. But if we're just using our insurance and going in for anxiety or a headache or back pain or whatnot, why would I need to know all that information? I come from a lot of different traditions that have taught me that knowledge can really be power. So I think one of the most important things we can know when we, when we walk into a doctor's office or a healthcare clinic are these hidden histories because it, it can help us understand and better shoulder the crushing weight of those histories without us feeling like it is our fault or take it personally in a way that might feel harmful for us. Because the reality is, is that many of us will have those interactions and, and not be well treated or fully seen by the healthcare practitioner that we're working with, especially in a place like Kaiser, which I have a very low opinion of. But it's a nonprofit, Mordecai. 
<laughs> well, I know some wonderful individual healthcare workers who work there who are really, really committed to being part of the solution. But but as a system, it's it's a very abusive one that really limits the power of its practitioners as much as possible because it is such a large kind of multi-tiered corporation. But in any case, yeah, I think that knowing this hidden history really can help us be more in our power when we receive care to have a clearer understanding of what we need and to have a better to have a better foundation to advocate for ourselves and just to even prepare for appointments. So, and I think, you know, for me, it's, and for, I don't know if it's just, I believe that it's probably for many of us when we have difficult interactions with healthcare, with healthcare providers who do in fact wield a great deal of power over us because this is the way the MIC is structured to really put people who are quote unquote patients in a subservient role. We don't even use the word patient within the health justice commons because we want to kind of disrupt the language that normalizes these and and invisibilizes these power imbalances. So we actually say people receiving care as opposed to patient. We also like to say like, also, guess what? Like time's up. We're not really patient anymore. (laughs) We're quite impatient. (laughs) In my office, we call them practice members because we're in practice and we're a member. Yeah. Yeah. But practically speaking, if you could just speak to like, you know, I think what what I have experienced, and I don't know if you've had this experience, is that a lot of people don't, it's so the water we swim in, that mm-hmm. the we're used to being disempowered, that it's that even to shine a light on, hey, I'm in the doctor's office, they're putting me in a paper gown that makes me feel horribly uncomfortable, particularly you know, with different gendered humans, or if you're just, you know, any person, it's not a very comfortable robe. It's a cold environment. They make you wait. And by the time, and you're already worried about, let's say in this case, anxiety. And then there's somebody that walks in. What, like, can you just shine a light on like, hey, I'm somebody, I'm just your average person going in for care. And I think that this is the kind of care I'm supposed to receive but it's, you know, I don't think we're used to understanding that we have a lot of power within our own healthcare, that we can be empowered sitting on that weird piece of furniture they have us sit on in that paper gown. What would you say, just in terms of practical, like, here's why they do it that way. Here's how it's disempowering. Can we shine a a light on that a little bit so people get a very practical usage of like, hey, wait, this is what you can do when you're going to the doctor? There's a lot of great insights and a few questions that you've asked there. So I think, you know, just to kind of circle back to the prior question, knowing the hidden history can help shine a light on just the, the broader kind of accumulated context of these power imbalances that are there by design so that it's not about Mm -hmm. you. You're landing in this moment in present time, but there's this big hidden history behind you that has really kind of solidified and normalized these practices. They're not about you, but they are about making, controlling people's behaviors and expectations. So to just see that hidden history and know that you can, that you have the right to disrupt it and expect something better is I think really huge. So I think even, you know, imagining a healthcare appointment and saying, okay, like what do I know that I really deserve if I was capable of 
and everybody was capable of receiving like the, the ideal healthcare, you know, what would that really look like for me? So that's like, you can start from there in some ways, as opposed to what, what might be the reality that's offered to you. And then from there, you can actually think about what types of requests or even requirements might you have for your, for your own self-advocacy in terms of like feeling more safe, more empowered, more supported. There's several things that you can do to prepare for any appointment, especially for those of us who have anxiety to help alleviate that. You can create a clear list of questions for yourself to go in with and a checklist of things that you want to make sure you accomplish before the appointment is over. You can say, for example, like, you know what, like I actually don't feel comfortable wearing a gown and I don't think that it's entirely unnecessary. So I'm actually going to let the triage nurse know who brings me in. Like I'm not going to wear the gown today. And then, you know, you can just let your doctor know that and you can just be brief about why, you know, you don't have to give a big explanation. You just be like, I don't see it's necessary for this type of consult and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. they're not, mm-hmm. any doctors are not used to just being told no. And a lot of them will go along with it, you know? And I think even in a place like Kaiser, we do, we are able to exert the control of, of changing our primary care physician. So you have leverage and, and some power there. A lot of times people have better results and have better rapport with a primary care provider who are nurse practitioners who are very knowledgeable, obviously, and often have as much, you know, a similar amount of prescribing quote unquote abilities as a doctor. And oftentimes what we really need our doctor to do is help us get access to the medication that's kind of gatekeeped by them. So that is an, an idea as well. And then you can always have somebody there with you, even, even now, in this, for most people, and and even during COVID, legally, at least in the state of California, you can have an advocate with you that's designated by you. They don't have to be a family member. They don't have to be an official advocate. You can just always have somebody with you. You can also record the session. State by state, the laws are different, whether or not you have to ask for consent but that's something that you can do to make sure that you have all the information on record for yourself clearly. And also, you know, have another witness of a doctor or a healthcare provider not checking themselves. So those are just some different pragmatic self-advocacy tools that we can deploy for ourselves. But I think also having the mindset going in that, You deserve to be honored and respected and receive the care that you Mm -hmm. need. That's just true. That's just true. And you know your body better than any provider from any place. And remembering that is kind of key. Yeah, we are the experts of our own bodies and no one has any higher expertise or authority than us. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I really find it incredibly helpful to have things that people can do at home. And I also think you have an incredible gift at teaching. So I will put a plug out there for learning these histories. And I I don't know the rest of your team, but it's really amazing to see why, you know, where all this comes from, where you do end up feeling defeated when you're sitting there. It's an incredible process. I'm going to switch our focus for a minute and just say, hey, this is the queer body 
I also know that you identify as queer. Would you like to share with us anything about your queerness and how you identify that way and how it's changed over your lifetime? I would love to share about that. Thank you so much. That's an excellent question. Before I do that, I just want to uplift and honor the Health Justice Commons team who will be part of the Fall Political Ed series, Understanding and Transforming the Medical Industrial Complex. My Mm -hmm. co-facilitator is RISE, and they are amazing. They're a Black doula and birth advocate and do and meditation teacher, and they just do a lot of beautiful, extensive work in our communities. And we are really, it's a real gift to have Rise as part of our team and to, and to be able to co-facilitate with them. And then we have a team of language justice and access support workers who provide captioning, ASL interpretation and English to Spanish interpretation for all of the sessions, which is also an amazing gift. And then for our final session for this series, we always have amazing guest presenters who are leaders in our communities. And for this fall's political ed series, we'll be joined by T.L. Lewis and Esperanza Dillard from H.E.R.D., And they are two amazing disability justice leaders. And yeah, their work is, yeah, their work is phenomenal. So it's a real honor to have them joining us as well. So I really encourage folks to check it out if you think that it would be valuable and meaningful for you or anyone you know, you're more than welcome. And with regard to my queerness, well, I I do love to share about it. You know, it's a huge part of my humanity it's a huge part of what shaped my consciousness of resistance, but also my consciousness of what is possible for myself and humanity. It's a blessing to have to be queer in this world, despite the huge amounts of transphobia and homophobia and heterosexism that we are up against as queer people. And then, of course, for those of us who are disabled and queer or people of color and queer or low income is queer. We, we have all these simultaneous oppressions that, that we're up against in addition to homophobia and transphobia and heterosexism. But I think that heteropatriarchy is one of the most harmful and toxic forces on the planet. So I think that my, my embodiment in and of itself as a queer person and that of my communities here and across the globe, we embody, we're inherently disruptive and we embody not just the possibility, but the reality of something very different. And I think we play a crucial role. I mean, in, in U S culture, the culture of turtle Island, which is the indigenous name here And globally as well, we play this really significant role of disrupting the harmful assumptions that are really endangering humanity and the planet as a whole. I think that we have really kind of sustained this possibility for alternative kinship and alternative families outside of heteropatriarchal norms, which kind of like really uphold and perpetuate capitalism and colonialist norms as well. So, I mean, in being able to, a lot of times the the chosen kinship that queer people engage in, it's because we've been unfortunately cut off from, from our biological families. 
but simultaneously it, it brings to it brings to bear this possibility of communion that we're told isn't really possible outside of blood relations. And that's amazing. It brings together people who, you know, who might not even have known each other. I have such a rich, blessed community of chosen family. And with them, I feel a sense of home and wholeness and a true acceptance and true unconditional love that I, I didn't experience with my biological family or in the, in, or in my place of origin. So, you know, there's a lot of queer migration and some of it is forced, certainly, and some of it is chosen. And I was able to choose to move to Ohlone territory, the Bay Area, because I knew it was kind of the queer Mecca. I knew it was the home of queer and trans resistance and, and queer and trans liberation and or one of the homes. And I did find a family here. And of course, it's also the home of like the Black Power movement and, and now you know, one of the key bases for absolutely disability justice and Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, and certainly disability justice and all of those communities and movements have helped me find a sense of home and chosen family. So I think like that is a huge part, this this all, this chosen kinship that we engage in. And, and then I think we also, from those blossoms, more culture of disruption and possibility and care networks and the creation of new institutions too that are outside of the ones that are more prominent and I think more oppressive. And that doesn't mean everything's perfect. I think unfortunately when we have internalized oppression, as we heal, we unfortunately externalize it on those around us. You know, we're perpetually exposed to ongoing oppression. So it's, it's, you know, the second we unlearn something or heal, we're kind of reach, we're often resubjected to something. So it's an ongoing process. But I think that for me, being queer has enabled me to have a sense of home within myself and with others that I don't know that I would ever have experienced if I wasn't. And that is a gift beyond measure. Totally agree. You know, just for fun, just to kind of lighten it up a little bit, how do you feel about words like gay? I don't know that I feel any way strongly. I mean, I I think it's, it, for me, I came, I was a young person in the 80s and 90s. So even for me, like the term gay is a little bit old school, but I'm like down with it. You know, if someone identifies as gay, then I am, I'm totally here for it. I'm really here for and want to uplift for and with anyone, whatever words we want to use to describe ourselves and understand ourselves that make us feel more whole, more witnessed, more in our power. So I think, you know, it's all good. (laughs) I I think it's all good. And I think it's interesting also how we pick different labels for ourselves. And, you know, for me personally, you know, queer was just so much more edgy as you've been talking about, of, of a new paradigm of new things and gay. I actually remember being at a doctor's appointment and, you know, kind of looking at what they were writing and they wrote homosexual. And I'm like, what is that word? What does that mean? <laughs> oh, oh, right. That's me. Oh, okay. You know? <laughs> the yes. languaging is odd. <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely is. And it's like very, of course, as queer or trans or non-binary or intersex people, you know, those of us who might think that we are like, 
in the kind of LBGT, you know, QQI umbrella, there is a, a huge amount of pathologization and medicalization. And I think we, you know, there, again, there's a lot of contradictions and double binds where we need to go through this maze of gatekeeping to get access to the care that we need that might, in fact, give us more autonomy in our lives. But we kind of, you know, and then there's other extremes where particularly intersex people have have very invasive, violent care foisted upon them. And then people who are trans or non-binary who might want gender-affirming care have to have to navigate through a huge amount of scrutiny and gatekeeping. So, you know, we have to deal with a lot of over-medicalization and pathologization. But I think in our heart of hearts, it's just, yeah, to reclaim our ability and right to name ourselves and describe ourselves, to know ourselves and our wholeness, and to know that we're just kind of part of the vibrant, diverse expression of humanity. You know, there's no need to pathologize us or even kind of define how or why we're here. Or even if we were born or not born this way, we're this, we're this way. We're, we're here. We're queer. You know? Get used to it. <laughs> used to it you know? Yes, yeah. absolutely. That that old catchphrase is still is still a powerful one. And when I first came out, I came out as bi. Then I came out as a lesbian. Then I came out as transmasculine. But even even during that period, I definitely felt I kind of existed in this liminal space that there wasn't really a broader framing for until. You know, I would say the millennial generation was really like, yeah, like non-binary, like we're a thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, younger ones. (laughs) (laughs) Like young, queer and trans and non-binary people, like we're supporting each other's kind of shared legacies and contributions. And I think that's amazingly powerful as well. Yeah, I so appreciate you sharing all of that. It's it's always interesting to hear our journeys and how we get here. And yeah, the young people are definitely changing the face of queerness, which was one of the things that got me into the podcast. There's just a whole different way of being in the world that back in the ACT UP Queer Nation days was was more set. It's a beautiful thing to watch expand and evolve and move. I want to check in with you because I know that we need to wrap up. Is there any burning thing that you want to say that you didn't get a chance to say that I want to give you that space? Thank you so much. That's really generous of you. I would say to all of your listeners, if what I've shared touched you or moved you or excited you in some way, if there's any way that you think the health justice comments could connect with you, support your work, if you want to come learn with us or join with us in any way, please do. Please reach out. Join the Fall Political Ed series, the Community Education series, or come to one of our Rad Healers gatherings, or if you're looking for healthcare that you haven't been able to get access to, please reach out to us to connect with the Radical Telehealth Collective. And you can find us at our website. And then you can always email us at hjcommonscontactus at gmail.com or healthjusticecommons at gmail.com. Yeah. And I just, I, I thank everyone who's listening and I hope that if it would be valuable that we can connect with you more soon. And I thank you so much for inviting me to this podcast.
Oh, my honor. Thank you so much for the incredible work you do in the world. I'm so grateful for for you and what you're contributing to the world and what you're illuminating through your education and then also activism. I really appreciate all the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Ditto. You've been listening to the queer body podcast where we are redefining the edges of queer identity and healing. For more information about Dr. Laura Polak or our podcast, check out our website, communityholistichealth.com. Thank you for listening.